Maybe it's the time switch. You guys just can't get up in the dark. I don't know what it is. Got some empty seats this morning. Next week we start Second Peter. It's a great book of the Bible. So come on and bring your friends. We'll be looking at, especially that first chapter is just marvelous. It gives it giving us some principles for Christian growth and, uh, and uh, the necessity to know that I make our calling and election sure. We'll get into that book. It, it has some controversy to it, too. So we'll, we'll examine that about Second Peter and uh, have a good old time in that book starting next week. We finish up First Peter today. Take your Bibles and turn to First Peter 5. Imagine that, five chapters of the Bible in five months. I hope you're reading the Bible faster than we are here on Thursday mornings. We're just plugging along. We're going to look at five verses this morning. We'll start with verse 10. 1 Peter 5:10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Okay, I think today we are not only without our words for the song, we're without our words for our amen outline. So I'll be more explicit in giving these words to you. Let's look at Roman number one, which is going to be about verses 10 and 11. They kind of hang together. And the idea here is have faith in the God of grace. That's Roman numeral number one. Have faith in the God of grace. Now, why do we say that? Because we're going to be talking about standing fast in the grace of God. But before you stand fast, you have to believe in the grace of God. And these things go together. He calls God here and the God of all grace. What a wonderful title for God. That you can just call him when you pray to him today. Just say God of all grace. What a wonderful way to describe him. And you'll see that grace is a, an emphasis in First Peter. And you see the several citations there in, in chapters, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and 13, chapter 2, 19 and 20, chapter 3, chapter 4. Every chapter uh, has something about the grace of God in it. So it obviously is the underlying context in which Peter is encouraging everybody to stand firm. And so you'll notice that before we take the imperative from God about what we're to do to stand firm, we take the indicative. That is, he describes what he does for us. You'll notice that that uh, Romans is laid out this way. The first 11 chapters describe what God has done for us. And then you get to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And he goes on and shows us how we're to love each other. And many other ethical injunctions given to us in chapters 12 through 15. But he starts with the grace of God and what God has done for us. Same thing in Ephesians. Years ago, we studied Ephesians here, and you see in the first three chapters that Paul is describing what God has done for us in Christ, what God, the Holy Trinity, has done for us in saving us, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then chapter 4, 5, and 6 begins with, therefore, let us walk worthily of the calling we received in Jesus Christ. 
So we're called first into this massive calling by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he commands us to live a certain way. And actually, that's what's happening here. Peter, as he's saying goodbye and summarizing this entire letter, which this is all about, is really a summary of everything that we've studied in five chapters. He begins by talking about God's grace and the God of all grace to us. Now, specifically, let's see what aspects of this grace he refers to. In uh, 510a, he says, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. A is he has called us. He has called us. This word calling is also used a bit in 1 Peter. It's a very important word in the scriptures. And uh, you'll notice that in the Bible, the word calling refers to two things. It refers to, first of all, being a Christian. God calls his people to follow him. Secondly, it refers to being an apostle. So in a Christian or an apostle. Sometimes we'll say, you know, I was really called to be a banker. It's just really obvious. God called me. Or God called me to be a salesman. I'm just built for it. just made for it. I just find delight in it. Or God called me to be a pastor. And I want to suggest that none of those callings are found in the Scriptures. Called to your occupation. The fundamental meaning of calling is called into Christ to be his follower. Then by inference, by deduction, you determine that the best way for you to follow Christ in your occupation is to be this occupation, that occupation, or that occupation. So technically, you're not called to be a missionary or called to be a pastor or called to be a church leader in the same way that you're called to be a Christian. Your calling to be a Christian is immediate. It is intuitive. It's, that is, it's internal. It's infallible and it's irrevocable. But my calling to be a pastor is mediated. It's not immediate. It's mediate. That is, I've, I haven't had an, an intuitive and direct revelation from God that I'm to be a pastor. I have thought about it. I've reflected on it. It's mediated through my mind and through the advice and encouragement that I get. It's also, it's also revocable. Uh, it's also fallible. I could have misunderstood the advice I got, or I could have drawn very poor conclusions. And there are some people who are pastors who probably should revoke their pastorate. Sometimes I hear guys, so they get in a certain church and they say, I was called here. I'm not going to leave. That's the problem with confusing the word calling. You know, some pastors really should leave. You can't get rid of them. They're saying that they were, God called them there. What are you supposed to say? The only thing you can say that's irrevocable about your calling is I'm called to be a Christian. I'm not moving because God called me. But called to be a banker, called to be a pastor, called to be a missionary... That's done by inference. Now, the Spirit of God works in that. You know, in Acts 20, Paul speaking to the elders he, in Ephesus, he says that the Holy Spirit called, uh, led you to this. Uh, you, you take, he says, uh, uh, keep charge over the flock of God, uh, w- which the Holy Spirit uh, has given you. So the Holy Spirit does lead us into our ministries, but we are fallible interpreters of the work of the Spirit. Whereas becoming a Christian is infallible. God speaks to us just as clearly as I'm speaking to you, even more clearly, because he goes inside your head. A lot of stuff I say hits your head and bounces off. You don't remember it. But God's calling goes right into your heart. He, he takes care of that. He says, I'm not, not going to bounce off your head. This calling is not only outward, but it's inward, and it's infallible and irre- irrevocable. So this is the calling that Peter's talking about. 
it's what we call primary calling. Our calling to occupation, if you want to use that terminology, just call it, use it, use the term secondary calling. So I have secondary calling to be a pastor. I'm called by the church, and the church is fallible. But I'm called by the Spirit to be a Christian. That's what Peter is talking about here. He, the God of all grace, has called you. And we all have calling. And the word calling in Latin is vocare, which means vocation. So you see, initially the word vocation did mean our calling to be Christians. Now, in the medieval church, the only ones who had vocation were the clergy and those who were married. You could have a, you could have a calling to marriage or calling to clergy. And then you remember at the Reformation, one thing Luther said was, no, 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 everybody's got calling if they're Christians. And he was just going back trying to be radical in the Scriptures. Now, I would suggest you can continue to use the word secondary calling. You may have a secondary calling to be married or a secondary calling to be clergy or a secondary calling to be a banker. But your primary calling we all have together equally, and that is in Christ. Now, let's look at this calling. Number one, it means he initiates our relationship. He initiates our relationship. And you pick that up in several places in First Peter, as you see there. But God starts this whole thing. Now, leave your finger in First Peter and turn over to, to Mark's gospel, uh, page 1600 in your Bible. In your spirit of the Reformation study Bible, 1600, Mark 1. And let's look at how this works in the first century when Jesus was here in the flesh. In verse 16, back up to verse 14 on page 1601, Mark 1, 14. After John, that be John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus takes up the ministry, the prophetic ministry, and says the kingdom of God is near. Uh, repent and believe. There's the commandment. The announcement is the kingdom is here. Of course, he's the king, the coming king. The injunction is to repent and believe. Then look at verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So they're out there fishing. Now, verse 17. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. So they get the invitation. They get the calling from Jesus. And in verse 20, uh, you see kind of a replay of this where it says, without delay, he called them. There's that word. Now, in verse 18, you get their response. At once they left their nets and followed him. Okay, but one thing you get very clearly here. Now turn over to Mark 3. Uh, one thing you get very clearly is that Jesus is taking the initiative. And they at once obey him. So what it means to be a disciple is to hear that calling, drop your nets and follow him immediately. No reservations, no hesitations. You get the same thing in Mark chapter 3, the second instance in Mark's gospel of Jesus calling. And uh, in verse 13, page 1606, you have Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles. Now, Look at that language in 13 and 14a. 
there's one thing that comes through very clearly. It is who is boss. <laughs> Jesus goes up the mountainside. He prays with his father. He contemplates. He reflects with the Lord, uh, his father. He comes off the mountain. He calls those he wanted. And then he gives them the name. He designates them apostles. He, he, he. And sometimes I think guys get really confused in their discipleship. They, they think they've got an equal partner in Jesus. You know, God is my co-pilot. You can hang that up. You know, God is your pilot. And you're, you know, you're just, you're just, you're just fortunate to be on the plane. <laughs> so you're not flying that plane. This is Jesus' plane, his fuel, and he's driving it. And he's called you to come along, and you're thrilled. So that's, that's the idea from the Scriptures. And it's important for us, of course, with respect to the world, to be proactive people. And uh, so much of what's written now, you know, whether it's Stephen Covey or uh, anybody on leadership and in Christian leadership books, you know, be proactive. Well, certainly be proactive. Do something, as they say. And we should be doing something in the world around us. We should be... Uh, we should be change agents. We should be taking the initiative. But that's with respect to men. With respect to our wives, take initiative in love. You be the initiator because God initiated with you. And that's what love does. It initiates. So you initiate forgiveness. You initiate confession to begin with. You initiate kindness because you're imitating him. So with respect to other people, we initiate just like the apostles did. They went into all the world and proclaimed the gospel and planted the church everywhere. Amazing initiators. But with respect to God, we are completely responders. We're the reactive ones, not the proactive. And sometimes men get it confused. And they get proactive with God. Now, God, I'm telling you, you know, just listen to their prayers. Like they're bossing God around. Be very careful. There's a thing called reverence, fear, uh, awe of God. And we are responders. We are his children. We are the listeners. We reflect on what he says. And then we go out and we're proactive with respect to men. The only kind of proactive man who's safe is one who's reactive with God. And that's the reason that your prayer life and your meditation, your thought life, your inward contemplations are very important. And the more active you are in this city and in this nation, the more active you are in your business, the more important it is for you to be a thinker. You know, uh, Peter Drucker said the, the most common weakness among CEOs is that they don't think enough. He said they need to put planning time on the beginning of every day, the beginning of every week, the beginning of every quarter, the beginning of every year in increasing amounts of time. And I would say the analogy for the spiritually minded man is you've got to be a man of prayer in the Word. And one of the most common mistakes among Christian men is they rush out and want to do something and they haven't really sought the Lord. Here you find, and back to First Peter now, here you find clear, and you'll see the same thing in Mark 6. We won't look at it, but you have three callings in, in Mark's Gospel. And obviously in each case, Jesus is taking the initiative with us so he initiates our relationship, and that puts us in dependent, uh, reactive, 
mode with respect to God. Now, secondly, under A, he completes our relationship. It says in the text in 510A, who called you to his eternal glory. So he didn't just call you to follow him. He did do that. He called you to take the first step. But you know what? He's already called you to take the last step. He's already called you into his eternal glory. It's already happened. Is it past tense? Do you notice in this verse, in verse 10, he's already called us into his glory. So just as surely as you became a Christian, if, you, if you're a Christian this morning, it's just as surely as you became a Christian because he called you, just as surely you're already destined for glory. Now, let's, let's turn back to Romans for just a moment. Romans uh, 8 and uh, that's on page 1824. For some of you, it's too early in the morning to remember what order the books in the Bible are. Romans uh, 8. I'd like for you to look at this text um, for just a moment and see what Paul says about it. He says in Romans 8, 28, that very famous verse, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All right? So he says, if you've been called, you can be assured that everything in your life is working for the good because you've been called according to his purpose. That is, he's called you for his purpose. He has a plan. He has a reason that he has called you. And since he's sovereign over everything in the universe, he is pulling off his reason. He's going to make his purposes come to pass. And his purposes toward you are benevolent. So everything, everything is orchestrated for your ultimate good, your glory. And he goes on to say, here's why. For, verse 29, those God foreknew, that is, those he foreloved. You know, as you know, in the Bible, to know someone is to love them. Or, you know, for example, in... Sexual relationships, the man knew the woman. And so there's, a, there's an intercourse here, a spiritual intercourse. God, knew, he loved us before we were even born, before we were conceived, before the worlds were made. He foreloved us. So foreknowledge simply means that he had us on his heart before all time in eternity. So for those he foreknew, he also predestined. So he had you in his heart. From all eternity, before the worlds were made, he foreloved you. And then loving you, he determined to get you home safely in heaven. So there are two aspects of God's mentality here. He knew, foreknew us. He also predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So when he predestined us, what he predestined us for was to look just like Jesus Christ, his son. Before Christ was ever sent to the world, ever born of a virgin, ever resurrected, God had already predestined, he had predetermined that you, if you're a believer in Christ, would look just like his son. So you'd be, pre, you'd be conformed to his likeness that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is to say, so that Jesus Christ would not be the only son, but that there would be an entire harvest of sons for God's glory. Now look at verse 30. And those he predestined, this is called the golden chain of salvation. Those he predestined, he also called. Stop for just a moment. So if anybody's being called, not outwardly by the outward audible call of the gospel, 
That's an important call, but it's an outward call. But he's talking here about the effectual call, that is the internal call, that surely saves people. God calls us effectually, as we say. That is, not, it includes the gospel, but it also includes the work of the Spirit to open our hearts to hear and believe the gospel. So this calling is holistic. It's the gospel coming to us, the outward call that hits our ears, and then the inward call that changes our hearts and makes fertile soil so the seed of the word will gestate, plant, and bear good fruit. And so we are told that those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Now look at this last phrase. Those he justified, he will also glorify. That's not what it says. He also glorified. Past tense. Good is done. That's the point the apostle is making. Paul is saying there are no unfinished symphonies in God's work. When he starts something, he brings it to completion. Look at Philippians uh, chapter 1. This would be page 1917. Philippians, Paul writes and says, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So those he has predestined, he has called, those he has called, he has made right before God. He has justified them so that we are now fully justified before God. And those he has now fully justified before God, he has glorified. As Charles Spurgeon said about this text in Romans 8, he says, there's no stopping this God. He's absolutely relentless when he sets his eye upon his, his sons and daughters. When he sets his heart upon those he loves, he is determined to bring us home. Now, that's, that's back to 1 Peter now. That is what the Apostle Paul has taught us. It's also what the Lord Jesus teaches us, as we'll see in a few moments. But this is the soil in which we take our stand. Before we ever talk about what we're going to do, the proactivity that we're going to take on, we look at God's proactivity toward us. We'll see why in just a moment. Now, thirdly, under he called us, we have, first of all, he initiates our relationship. Secondly, he completes our relationship. And thirdly, he personalizes our relationship. Notice the text. He personalizes our relationship. Notice the text in 510a. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. Look at this in Christ. This is not an impersonal decree. It's a very personal decree decree. He sent his son for us. It's a personal rescue job. He didn't send the angels to save us. He didn't just shout from heaven to creation to get everything in order so we'd be saved. He personally came down to save us. And not only by sending his son to die on the cross, but by sending his son to give us life through his resurrection power, and by the gift of faith, by His Spirit in our hearts, so that we can be attached to Him and have life in Christ. Now, the text we want to look at for just a moment is in Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 2, 
verses 6 and 7. And let me, let me show you what I'm talking about here and what I think Peter is talking about. By looking again at Paul, this is page 1930. Colossians 2, verse 6. Paul says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Now, let's just stop right there. That word live is the word walk. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. Now, gentlemen, when, uh, last fall or last year sometime, we were studying Colossians here in our church. And I told our folks, this is an unusual phrase. Continue to walk in him. Now, in the Old Testament, we are told that people like Abraham and Moses walked before God. That is, they walked before his face in his presence. We're told that Enoch walked with God. So you can walk before God and you can walk with God. If you walk before him, that just means that you're consciously living in his presence. If you walk with him, that means this is intimate. It's like hand in hand. You're with him. Now, those are fabulous comments from the Old Testament and in some senses make us unique among the nations that our God tells us that we can walk in his presence every day and we can walk with him every day as his sons. But this doesn't say walk before or walk with. It says walk in. Gentlemen, how do you get any closer than that? It's kind of like you put your hand in a glove, you know, or I'm walking in these pants. I'm walking in these clothes. I mean, these clothes are attached to me. They're pretty intimate. And I guess the, the closest thing I can think of in the Old Testament is where in Jeremiah, God uh, tells Jeremiah to bury his underwear, basically, and then to put it back on. And God tells us that, that uh, he's kind of our BVDs, you know. He's our, he's our underwear. He's, he's that close to us. And that's the point he's making with Jeremiah. So I guess you could say there's an analogy, but this is even more than that. We are walking in Jesus Christ. He is walking in us. It's so intimate that it's it's very difficult to describe. You know, and Jesus, when he describes it, uses the analogy in John 15 that he's the vine and we're the branches. So we have the same sap so that we're organically connected to him. Or as Paul says, you know, he's the head and we're the body. So we're, we're one body. It's very intimate. That's the whole point of the New Testament in describing the grace of God, that we are in him. How can you be lost if you're in him? Is Jesus going to cut off his right arm? Is he going to cut off his left foot? What's he going to sacrifice? What, what if Jesus is not going to be complete? If we're in his body, we belong to him. We're members of Christ. That's the description that's being given. Turn back now to First Peter. And you see that he has called us By initiating our relationship, completing our relationship, and personalizing our relationship, we are called to eternal glory in Christ. What a calling it is indeed. Now, secondly, in terms of what God has done for us, in verses 10b through 11, notice that what 
is really being said here. Uh, this is B, as in boy. He will keep us. He will keep us. And, uh, of course, you have Jesus making this famous statement in John chapter 10, where he talks about himself being the good shepherd. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Um, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. This is John ten twenty eight. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So Jesus is saying, when you have been saved, I have taken you into my hands. I have very strong hands and I'm a very determined shepherd and I'm going to hang on to my sheep and no wolf is going to come along and snatch these babies out of my hands. It's very determined, uses very strong language. And that's exactly what the apostle Peter is saying here in this text, that after you have suffered a little while, he himself will restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. So he's going to take care of you. Now, let's pause for just a moment and ask ourselves the question, you know, isn't this getting the cart before the horse? I mean, shouldn't we, I mean, since we're all, since we're all subject to weakness and failure and disobedience, shouldn't we, you know, use the carrot and the stick? I mean, shouldn't we have heaven dangling out here in front of us, just in front of our nose, and then every once in a while get whacked in the behind and told, you know, you do that one more time, I might just, I might just divorce you. I might just, I might just disinherit you. And doesn't that actually work better with sinful people like us? I mean, don't we need to be kind of have the wit scared out of us every once in a while? Gentlemen, uh, it's true that God is an awesome God. It's true that you don't mess with Him. It's true that uh, that um, anyone who's in the church and apostatizes. Uh, is in deep trouble and will be destroyed unless they repent. It's, there's enough to be fearful about. But what, what the apostle is teaching is that when God has called you, that is, he has definitively changed your heart and converted you. Not just that you join the church. That's an outward thing. But when you have been given new life, that he, he is not an Indian giver. And that when he gives you new life, it's for real, it's for keeps, it's forever. And furthermore, for the truly converted man, the only effective motive to move ahead in your life is to know that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you don't believe Peter, you might believe Paul. And you can look in Romans 5, 6, and so on, where Paul is answering the same objection. In fact, as one commentator on Romans has said, if you don't ask this question, you haven't understood what he said. If you don't ask the question, doesn't that undermine the motivation to obedience? You haven't understood the gospel because a proper understanding of the gospel logically leads to that question. The gospel is free and the gospel is total and it's complete. And what Paul then shows you in Romans 6, 7 and 8 is that the only possible motive to lead a Christian life ethically is to know that God will never let you go. Now, it's true there is such a thing as a hypocrite. That would be a man who stands up and professes Christ, makes some outward changes in his life, joins the church, tells everybody he's a Christian, never was converted on the inside. 
And that happens over and over and over again. And because that happens, men will sometimes say, well, see there, God, God does call people and then let them go. People backslide, then they're right back out of there, out of the faith. Never stopping to think for a moment that perhaps that man was never converted in the first place. Or not stopping to think, well, we do backslide. But God's people will always come back. The end of the story hasn't been told yet. So either he is a backslidden, genuinely converted person, or he never was converted in the first place. Now, that's the way the Bible describes human experience. We must be very careful that we don't draw our doctrine simply from observation. Because we're seeing certain facts, but then to try to interpret those facts is called interpretation. And it comes out of a doctrinal framework. And I suggest you get your doctrinal framework from the Bible that then will interpret what you're observing. And I think I just gave you a faithful interpretation of the observation of men who are in the church and back out of the church. As John says, they left us because they were never of us. So that's what is being said here. Once you're of him, once you are walking in him, once you have his spirit in the sense that you've been converted, he ain't never letting you go. I think that's too negative, but Southerners know what I mean. He will never let you go when you've been truly converted. And that's the only way in which you can be properly motivated. And, well, every single one of us grew up in a home that was at least partially manipulative. And every one of us who are fathers have led homes that are at least partially manipulative because sinners do try to manipulate with guilt and fear. But that is not the way your father is motivating you. Neither is it the way that we should be motivating others. We've been motivated by grace. And when that begins to seep down into your soul, you begin to motivate other people very differently. That's the way it works. So he will keep us. Now, notice, first of all, this is B1. He keeps us in our sufferings. He says, after you have suffered a little while, does this mean that you won't suffer? Because God has saved you? Of course not. He says you're saved in your sufferings. As a matter of fact, from Romans 8, we can even suggest you're saved for your sufferings. Paul calls us sheep to be slaughtered. We're being fattened for the slaughter. Why are we called to suffer? Because Jesus Christ was called to suffer. And we are in Him. Remember, we're walking in Him in a broken world. Now, when we walk in Him in glory, we will no longer suffer. He's no longer suffering either. But when we're in Christ in this world, of course we suffer. He was called to suffer. We're called to suffer. But notice, if you'll leave your finger there, you can turn over once again. Let's look at Paul's interpretation of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul speaks about his not being discouraged by his own sufferings. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, and here's the guy who was shipwrecked three times when he wrote this. He was beaten with 39 lashes. He was stoned and left for dead. He says, light and momentary. Light and momentary by comparison, of course. Light and momentary troubles are, look at this, achieving for us an eternal glory 
that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So he's saying, while we're suffering, we have our eyes on the goal, our eternal glory. And he says in this text, we are being kept by God, not in spite of our sufferings, not just through our sufferings, but by our sufferings. So the Father is hanging on to you, among other strategies, through your sufferings. They, in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, we are told that our sufferings are achieving for us the eternal glory. Your sufferings are actually purposeful. They are productive. They are achieving something. They are accomplishing something. Namely, your ultimate glory. Wow. So God, when he calls us, sees that everything works together for our good, including our sufferings, which are accomplishing for us this great glory. Now, secondly, B2, he will keep us by his power, by his power. Notice that we are told he will himself restore, make us strong, make us firm, make us steadfast. These are four verbs here, which really mean the same, just different aspects of the same thing, which is he'll establish us. He's going to establish us. He's going to make us strong. He himself, we're told, it's emphatic. He himself will do the work to establish us. Now, does that mean you don't work? Does it mean you have your hands off the plow? No. You've got your feet firmly planted on the ground, your hands to the plow, and your head in the heavenlies. So you are very much at work, but you're aware that you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and he is at work within you and through you to enable you to be established and firm. You see how intimate this relationship is? God in his sovereign Intimate relationship with you is establishing you through your own sufferings and your own work. It is together, you and the Lord. And it is all thirdly for his glory. Peter can't help himself. He just busts out with to him be the power or the word there for power could be dominion. To him be the dominion forever and ever. That is just simply to say, God be king. God be glorified. God be lifted up. God be exalted. To Him be the glory, to Him be the power, to Him be the honor and praise for this great salvation in which He works through me that I might persevere. And that's the reason that, that sometimes it's preferable here to speak of perseverance as opposed to eternal security. We are eternally secure. That's the bottom line. But the word perseverance adds an element to it. Perseverance means you will persevere by God's grace and power in your life. So it's not as though it's impersonal or that you're inactive. And eternal security uh, uh, doesn't speak to the issue of your activity. Perseverance does. So we believe in the perseverance of the saints, which includes your eternal security. So perseverance is just a more comprehensive term. And that's exactly what's, what's being said here. Now, Secondly, Roman numeral two, when you look at verses 12 through 14, we are basically told stand fast in the grace of God. Stand fast in the grace of God. Roman numeral one was have faith in the God of grace. Number two is stand fast in the grace of God. And that's what he says. Stand fast in it. This is the whole point of first Peter 
to stand fast in the grace of God. Now, he's giving us a command, isn't he? If, if you look at, at verse 12, stand fast in it, that's a command. That's something we're supposed to do. And so it is. God is at work. And in the midst of his work, we're giving commands. And there's work we're supposed to do. And he, of course, by his spirit, enables us and empowers us to do that work to the end that we shall one day be glorified. This is called the mystery of God's providence. How does God rule over everything, including even our thoughts? How does he orchestrate everything, including the free will of human beings? I don't know. He's God. His providence and his power is so great that he even orchestrates the free decisions of human beings. So that it's not either God is sovereign or man is responsible. This is the big mistake a lot of men will make. They're trying to balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Let me tell you how it works. Just flip it this way. God's sovereignty over everything and man's responsibility within his sovereignty. So it's not like a balance. You're trying to figure out how to balance these two. Don't balance God with anything. God is sovereign over everything. And here in the midst of it, we have a human being. It's a God-centered world, a God-controlled world, including human beings. Man, contrary to the Enlightenment, is not the measure of all things. But in the Enlightenment, in the 18th century, we were told that he was the measure of all things. And therefore... Any theology that anybody works out must for sure establish the autonomy of the human being. That was the Enlightenment idea. And I suggest to you a lot of evangelical Christian theology has been framed by Enlightenment thinking rather than covenantal thinking, biblical thinking. We do not have to justify man. We do not have to have him as an autonomous, free being in our theology. But one thing we for sure have to have is a free God who does whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. And any closed system can only have one free being in it. You can't have two free beings. One of them has to be contingent upon the other. Think about it. Only one, at most, can be free. If nobody's free, then you have chaos. But in our open system, we have one free being, God. We are contingent beings. We are not ultimately free. We are dependent and contingent. We were created by Him, for Him, for His glory. He will do with us whatever He wants. He's the Creator. He is the potter. We are the clay. We are not free in that sense. We're not sovereign beings. He is. So our theology must first of all establish God as the sovereign, free being who controls everything in the universe He made. And then we begin to explain whatever freedoms we have, whatever rights we have. And whatever we have, they're simply given to us by Him. We can't create them ourselves. You can claim them, but you can't rightly claim them. You can only rightly receive them, all of our rights from Him. And therefore, if we have a right to believe what we want to believe, that's only because He gave you a right to believe what you want to believe. So our freedom is contingent upon His soul freedom in the universe. Now, how does this play out? One of the best examples is Acts 27. You can look at this later on this week. Acts 27. 
Here you have the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is, you know, the ship's starting to break up. There's this horrible storm. Paul's a prisoner. And Paul makes an announcement to the soldiers and everybody else on the ship that an angel of whose God he is told him in a dream that not a one of them would be lost. Now, what Paul is telling them is that God has predestined something. He is predestined that none of you will be lost. Okay? The story continues. The ship starts to break up, and some soldiers go for the lifeboat. You remember this? And Paul says to them, Do not get in the lifeboat, or you will be lost. You will perish. Huh? (laughs) Think about it. Does that make any sense to you? Not if you have an enlightenment paradigm. If you have a biblical paradigm, it makes perfect sense. God has already determined that nobody's going to be lost. And here's a commandment. Don't get in that lifeboat or you will perish. Here's the answer. They believed Paul's warning and commandment. They did not get in the lifeboat. And therefore, they were all saved and made it to the shore safely, as God had announced before it happened. So it is through the commandments and it is through our own sufferings that we ultimately will accomplish God's purposes. That doesn't mean that we don't have to obey commandments. It doesn't mean that we don't repent and believe. It simply means that God is sovereign over all of it. And that's exactly what's happening here. Stand fast in the grace of God. That's how you do it. You do your part. You listen to the Lord because He has guaranteed your salvation. He promises to keep you. So we stand fast in the grace of God. Now let's notice quickly four things about this grace. First of all, A. In 512a, we are told it is confirmed by faithful brothers. He says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, so on. He's done this with Silas. Silas has experienced this. And Peter is saying, I've not only experienced this, Silas has experienced it. Peter experienced it in John 21 when he was forgiven for having denied the Lord three times. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things, so on. And then remember what Jesus did. He told Peter how he was going to die. He said, someone's going to take you by the hands and lead you where you don't want to go. And, but, but you will not depart from me. So Jesus, the good shepherd, assured Peter, although you're going to suffer, in fact, you're going to face a martyr's death, you will not turn away from me. And Peter needed that for the next 40 years of ministry, 30 years of ministry. He needed to know he's going to make it. So do you. You're given some very difficult commandments today that you should love your enemy. That's very, very difficult. And you're given some commandments to to walk with the Lord in holiness and purity. That's very difficult in this world. But you are told you're going to make it. You already know you're going to win the ultimate war, even though the battles may beat you up every once in a while. And he's basically saying, Peter is, not only I, but Silas. We're both telling you this. Silas has traveled with the Apostle Paul. Silas is a faithful brother of mine here in Rome. Silas has been around the block a few times. Silas knows what he's talking about. We're both telling you this is the grace of God. Stand in it. And I've had people do that for me. Have you had people do that for you? Are you doing it for somebody else? Going to a younger man? Going to a younger kid? Say, you know what? Times can be difficult, but you're going to make it. I tell you, when I see a, an eighth grade girl 
that's got to be one of the most hellacious stages in human existence, to be an eighth grade girl. The cattiness of junior high girls is off the charts. Every chart known to man cannot record how catty eighth grade girls can be. Whenever I see one of them, anywhere in the, in the country, I just put my hand on their shoulder and say, sweetie, it's going to be okay. <laughs> you're you're going to make it, and the ninth grade is going to be better. You just want to encourage them. Say, you know, you're going to get through this, you're going to survive, and you are going to have friends. As ugly as they are to you right now, you're going to have friends. You're going to make it. And have you ever had an older man just put his hand on your shoulder when you were disturbed or worried about something? You said, you know what, I've been through this too. You're going to make it. And they told you a story about themselves. It was actually worse than what you're going through. And you go, you did that? <laughs> and you're so-and-so and you made it to so-and-so? Well, I guess I can make it. Faithful brothers encouraging each other. That's the way the grace of God gets communicated is that we have our grace stories. And your grace stories are not the ones where you were extraordinarily successful because of all the smart, clever things you did. But it was where you screwed up. And God in His grace covered for you and enabled you and gave you His joy and gave you a sense of His victory. Confirmed by faithful brothers. B. Written by apostolic witnesses. He says, I have written to you. This is the true grace of God. Written by apostolic witnesses. Gentlemen, if you want to believe some other form of salvation, you live in a free country. Free in the way that I described just a moment ago. Contingently free country. And here in this country, you can believe what you want to believe. You can read the books you want to read. You can establish whatever theology you want to. You can tell your children whatever you want to. My question to you is, where would you get it? And why do you believe it? I'll tell you where I got mine and why I believe it. I got it from the apostles. And I believe it because I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is working through them to give us the truth of God. And I believe they're credible witnesses. Why do you believe what you believe? That's why I believe what I believe. And here it is. I've written it to you, says Peter. And I've written it to you. This is the true grace of God. Stick to it. See, it is shared by others. Paul's writing those who are in Turkey, I told you, in Asia, modern Turkey. And he says to them, she who is in Babylon, obviously speaking about Rome. And you pick this up in Revelation, those texts there where the idea of Babylon out of the Old Testament is used for the modern day imperial city. She who is in Babylon sends greetings. Chosen together with you sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Here's Mark who had a falling out with Paul and then had, came back together with Paul. And those relationships were strained but never broken. And that's the way it is in the fellowship of believers. It's shared by others around the world. This grace that I'm talking about this morning that you're believing in, people in Ukraine, in Argentina, in Uganda, in Cambodia, in China, all around the world today, they'll be talking about the same thing. They'll be putting their, their trust in the same God of all grace. And they'll be seeking to live the life that we're talking about. It's all over the world. And that's what Peter was saying. This is not just a unique, unique little thing for those of you up in, in Asia. It's all the church everywhere. And when I go cross-culturally, I find one thing that crosses every culture, the grace of God. It's amazing. It's learned differently. It's challenged differently. But it's the same grace of God. And ultimately, when I speak to believers around the world from different cultures, we all have the same language. It's the language of the gospel. And that's what Peter is saying to encourage them. And fourthly, D, 
It is experienced in community. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Why would he command them to do that? That seems kind of odd. Is it just a formality? I think it's more than that. I think he's saying if you want to stand firm in the grace of God, if you really want to believe the gospel no matter what, if you really want to learn how to confess your sins instead of stonewalling and just defending yourself, you really want to learn how to live a confessing life that is dependent upon the forgiveness of God and the grace of God and where you're forgiving other people and being gracious toward them, if you want to do that, then learn to express it. And some of you are affection challenged. And find it hard, find it very difficult to express affection. And one reason is it wasn't expressed to you when you were a kid. You didn't, you didn't learn how to do it. And sometimes down deep inside, you'll look longingly at another guy who seems to be freed up and able to express his, his affections. And you say to yourself, I wish I could do that. And I just want you to know I, I deeply sympathize with you. I, I hurt for you. Because down deep inside, because of the gospel, all of you love people. And we need to learn to express it increasingly. If you are affection challenged, then I would suggest you start by doing things in writing. It's a little bit safer relationally. It's actually in some ways more meaningful to write something out. But to your wife, uh, let's see, next Monday is St. Patrick's Day. Great excuse to write your wife and give her a gift. Why don't you just write? Write to her. Why? Do it in green. Write to her why you love her and what you appreciate most about her. And start, start to express your affection. The other thing you can do is someone who's mentored you and meant a lot in your life, write them and tell them why they've meant so much to you and why you appreciate them. If they're in their 70s and 80s, especially write them. Because you guys in your 70s and 80s, we don't know how much longer we're going to have you. So you better write them. Uh, write them and tell them what they mean to you. And that's the reason he says here, Greet one another with a kiss of love. In most cultures, they do kiss. We're a non-kissing culture. Ours, our kissing is male-female. In other cultures, it's usually same gender. And uh, they do express their affections more than we do. Now, we're not as bad as the Japanese, who are very formal. But we're not as affectionate as some of the Europeans and certainly as, as the Africans and the Asians, who are much more, and the, the Hispanics in South America, much more affectionate in their expressions than we are. And I think what Paul, uh, Peter is saying is learn to express grace toward one another. Express it all the time. Then lastly, peace to all of you who are in Christ. And this is the way the peace of God comes. It's through grace. You will not experience the peace of God unless you're standing firm by believing in the grace of God toward you. They'll never let you go. And then standing firm in it by not following some other lifestyle or some other set of beliefs. Well, that's Peter, standing firm in the grace of God. Next week at Second Peter will be onward and upward. Let's pray together. Father, this week we thank you for your grace toward us. Thank you for Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us, for your spirit who has given us new life, and for the rich and wondrous promises which tell us that eternal glory is waiting for us for sure. And with that sure and certain hope, we pray that we may leave here today and stand firm in every aspect of the grace of God, for this is the true grace of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.